I remember my daughter's gastroenterologist saying, wow, you've really found a lot of great foods and you've really figured this out. Like we have so many patients are less compliant than you. I said, well, it was really hard. It was like at minimum a halftime job. Do all of your patients' families have the time and energy for this? And he said, well, probably not. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soulsmith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I'm chatting with Debbie Lewis, who is the author of the beautiful new memoir, Kitchen Medicine, How I Fed My Daughter Out of Failure to Thrive. Debbie has also written for the New York Times, Bon Appetit, Huffington Post, and many other outlets. She lives in the Chicago suburbs with her husband and teenage daughters. You can find out more about her work at DebbieLewis.com. This conversation is really close to my heart. As most listeners know, my own daughter spent the first two years of her life dependent on a feeding tube. So reading Debbie's memoir obviously hit home in all sorts of ways that she and I talk about. But I think this is a book that will resonate with so many of you if you are a parent who has fed a kid, even if it went swimmingly (laughs) without medical complications. There is so much you will relate to about Debbie's journey and the struggle to live up to all the external expectations about what feeding our kids looks like and what it means for our motherhood. So here's Debbie, but first a quick break. If you enjoy the conversation today and you would like to support the show, please consider a paid subscription to Burnt Toast. It's just $5 per month or $50 for the year, and it gets you a whole bunch of great perks, including subscriber-only bonus episodes where I answer your questions about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. You'll also get all of my reported essays and my monthly Ask Virginia column delivered directly to your email. And you'll become a part of the Burnt Toast community with commenting privileges and our super awesome Friday discussion threads. Just click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack to subscribe. And if you want to support the show but don't have $5, remember you're also helping tons when you subscribe for free in your podcast player and leave us a rating or review. Or just tell a friend about the show. Or just keep listening. That works too. Whatever you do, thank you so much for supporting independent anti-diet journalism. Hi, Debbie. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, and your work. Sure. My name is Debbie Lewis, and I am the mom of two teenage girls, 19 and 16, and married to my husband. We live in the suburbs of Chicago. And this is my first book that I'm very excited to share with all of your listeners. And in the rest of my day, I make websites. Awesome. Yeah. So we are here to talk about your new book, Kitchen Medicine. When this episode airs, it will be your launch week. So folks, it's in bookstores everywhere. It is just the most beautiful memoir of your experiences feeding your younger daughter, Sammy, who was diagnosed with failure to thrive at a really young age. And then you were just kind of like down the rabbit hole of pediatric feeding challenges, which is a world I've also been in. And I know a fair number of my listeners have been too. So we are all in solidarity on that journey. Let's start by talking a little bit about that failure to thrive diagnosis, because I just think it is such a really horrific term in a lot of ways. And it's both very common and thrown around a lot and just deeply misunderstood. I think there's a a lot of things wrong with the term, but I think most importantly is that it's not a very specific diagnosis. It's kind of a catch-all. And the real search is 
for why. Why would you diagnose a child with that? It's not the end. It's a symptom. And the other problem was that it was a wildly inaccurate term because if you had met my daughter during most of the years in which she fell under that umbrella of failure to thrive, you would never look at her and think this child is not thriving. This was a pink-cheeked, energetic, bubbly, cute little girl meeting all her developmental milestones, except for the ones that required her to be tall enough, Mm -hmm. right? So what it really was diagnosing was the fact that she wasn't growing on a trajectory that doctors wanted. If you looked over many years, you could see that that growth trajectory was her own and steady, and she didn't drop very often. And it was nothing that in retrospect, I should have been worried about. But because she was tiny, And because she wasn't getting less tiny compared to her peers, we kept hearing that. And the way that that diagnosis comes out over and over in time is when a doctor or a nurse sort of points their finger at a parent and kind of wags it a little and says, oh, mom, she's still a failure to thrive. Got to get a few more calories in her. As though that isn't the one thing you spend (laughs) most of your life trying to do. As though I wasn't chasing her around our house with a cup of Carnation Instant Breakfast already. You know, so that's the problem with that term is it says failure to thrive, but what it sounds like, at least what it sounded like to me, was failure to feed. I mean, there's so much inherent judgment and blame in that failure concept. And the idea that we would be labeling a child's body as a failure in some way is horrifying. And that we would be putting that on parents without giving the benefit of the doubt that, of course, this is a parent who loves their child and is trying so hard. And It reminds me too, you know, on the flip side, obviously on Burnt Toast, we talk a lot about kids in bigger bodies and it's so often the same thing. It's the same judgment and the same assumption that somehow a parent needs to be informed of their child's body when you're living in the world with this kid who's not in the 50th percentile in whichever direction. So you're getting the comments from strangers and family members and people all the time. People are watching your child eat or not eat. The idea of the medical establishment sort of feeling like it's our job to educate parents about this is something that I find really problematic. There are things that we miss when all we're focusing on is the amount of food or the number of calories, either too many or too few. You miss the mechanisms behind whatever you want to call it instead of failure to thrive, whether that's not meeting standard growth trajectory or some other kind of more descriptive term. The question should always be, if this is a problem. Why do you think it's a problem? And why do you think it's happening? Mm -hmm. And that is really hard for a parent to dig into when all they can hear is that they're doing it wrong. It's narrowing the conversation in this really unhelpful way. And that's the piece that the parent can't solve without the help of the medical establishment most of the time. I mean, if there Mm -hmm. is an underlying medical condition, of course, you need doctors to be doing their best work to help you figure that out and treat that. And instead, when you're sort of put into this confrontational adversarial relationship with doctors, then there's this lack of trust and no good comes of that. In both directions, right? We need to be able to find doctors that will work with us, but doctors also need to see us as parents, as part of the team. Mm -hmm. And if we're shut down because we're told we haven't 
fed our kids enough carnation instant breakfast that day. <laughs> you know, it's hard to participate fully mm-hmm. when you're sort of drowning in shame. The erasure of self when you're being called mom by someone who is not your child. It's it's intense. Oh my gosh, I remember that from our years of hospital living with my older daughter. Yeah, just being mom and just being like, I'm, I'm Virginia. I'm a person beyond right. this. Why? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, and I get they are busy and overworked. To be clear, Debbie and I are also big fans of the doctors who have helped our kids. Oh, but, God, yes. But taking that extra three seconds to learn someone's name and look at them as a human is everything. Yeah. In a hospital setting, I understand that every single person can't learn my name. But right. a doctor who I've worked with with my daughter for, you know, three years should have written my name somewhere on the top of the chart. A post-it note at some point. Would have been yeah. Yeah. So— You and I have both had this experience of the child who's struggling to eat enough and the medical system both blaming us and also not having the answers. They're saying to you, carnation instant breakfast, as if that's a newsflash, like they don't have any more revolutionary guidance for you. So when did you sort of realize like, okay, figuring out the food piece of this is falling completely on me? And it happened several times that a medical professional would prescribe a specific diet to my daughter. And she was on several restrictive diets over the years trying to uncover what was going on. So they'd prescribe the diet and they'd hand me a packet of photocopied sheets with, you know, food information on them. And then say, do you have any questions? And if I couldn't think of something in the moment, reaching them later was really hard. And there were actually several moments because we're a vegetarian, most of these doctors didn't want us to add meat to our daughter's diet and complicate the process since it never had been in there before. But so many of these diets had, you know, a lot of meat in them. And when I would ask, what would you replace meat with in our case, there would sort of be a blank stare and the question of if we'd ever tried beans. And as vegetarians, had you heard of beans beans a couple of times? We'd heard of beans. We tried them a few (laughs) thousand times. So I think it was one day sort of sitting on my kitchen floor with the photocopies and all my cookbooks and realizing there wasn't another roadmap for me. Nobody was coming to rescue me. I was just going to have to figure this out. And partly that's why I wrote this book, because I think that's a very common situation. If you enter any online support group for any medical issue that has a diet associated with it, you know, whether that's families with children who have type 1 diabetes or celiac disease or any of that. It's very peer supportive because there isn't anything out there that we can find elsewhere, right? So feeling that it was all on me was both really hard and really overwhelming, but also then it meant I didn't have to consult with anybody. There wasn't anybody to ask or talk to. It was also quite empowering. Mm -hmm. Once I had my groove going, knowing that I could do it myself and seeing it as a creative challenge was sometimes, you know, really satisfying. And in the course of all of this, as hard as it was, learning to cook this way helped me fall in love with food in a way that I couldn't before. I had to see it as important fuel and also love and nurturing. And in doing that for my daughter, it was a way of doing it for myself too. There was a phase in our journey when Violet was still on her feeding tube and we were doing a blended diet for the feeding tube, which is not something I recommend everyone do. It's incredibly labor intensive. But I realized at that place where I was with our relationship around food, 
it was the first opportunity I had had to feel like I was feeding my child really directly and not just, and this is not to formula shame because formula also saved her life, but, you know, I had spent the first year and a half just pumping formula into her feeding tube. And so to be able to take a more active role in cooking for her, even though she couldn't yet eat by mouth, was really healing. And in many ways, like whether or not that was an important part of her recovery, it was an important part of my recovery around it. So, yeah, sure. I think finding the ways to sort of, yeah, take pride in what you're doing and find your confidence with it and find some joy in it is everything. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to talk a little more about the experience of being on these medically supervised diets. Mm -hmm. You talk about a couple different ones in the book. We also had to do fat-free for a while. So I really related to that part of the book because mm -hmm. that is a brutal diet to do with a small child. When you're on one of these weird diets, people say really idiotic things to you about how your kid is eating and their own food stuff comes up. So you did touch on this a few times in the book, but I'm just curious to hear a little more about how diet culture intersected with all of this for you. It was bananas. I assumed that if an adult was on a diet like this for medical reasons, that they would hear these kinds of things. I wouldn't have been surprised, but I was horrified and shocked to hear people talking like this about my anywhere from four-year-old to eight-year-old when it came to these things. There's one instance, I don't talk about this in the book, but my daughter was on a six-food elimination diet, which was no dairy, no soy, no eggs, no nuts, no wheat, and no fish. We were also already vegetarian. And the results of that trial of taking all of those things out, if she was successful in that her esophagus had healed the kind of damage it had sustained prior by going on that diet, then we would be able to start adding things back in. But if she didn't, then at the age of five, she would have been put on an elemental formula. Oh, and man. anybody who's fed their baby's elemental formula will recall the smell of elemental formula. And babies don't know any different, but four-year and five-year-olds certainly do. And we had been warned that if she ended up on this formula, that there was a chance she wouldn't be able to bring herself to take it in herself and she'd need an NG tube or a G tube. And I was really afraid of that. And I know I would have been grateful for it if we, you know, so that it would keep her alive and healthy, but I really hoped it wouldn't happen. And a friend of mine said, well, you know, the upside of that, if she ends up living on that kind of food for the rest of her life, is that she's never going to be fat and she's never going to have all these emotional issues around food. And so at least you could know that. And I remember where I was when she said it. I remember how I felt when she said it. My instinct was to kick her out of my house. I never wanted to talk to her again. I just, I couldn't believe someone would say that there was an upside to never eating food again. Yeah, yeah, that is... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just taking a minute with that one because, uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, that is right. literally that being fat is something to be avoided so much at the cost right. of actually eating food. It was awful. And I was angry, really angry in the moment, especially because I like food. I mean, right. I'm not afraid to say I think food is fantastic. I think it's delicious. I think it's adventure and joy and love and community and all of those things. And I didn't want my daughter to miss out on it. But when I really thought about it, I also felt really sad for my friend that her relationship with food was so fraught and so negative for her that she could see the upside to never being able to eat again. 
I mean, it's a sign of sickness yeah. to feel that way. I mean, that is a deep heartbreak. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. To, to feel that alienated from food, that the idea of injecting a formula into your stomach feels better, which is what life on a G-tube with elemental formula is. And mm-hmm. also, I have so much gratitude for G-tubes, and they are a valid way to feed somebody who needs uh-huh. to be fed that way. But you are missing out on a lot of life if that's how you're eating. Yeah. And it's not that I think there wouldn't have been joy, community, family, love in my daughter's life without eating regular food. Of course there would have been. But it was a big part of our lives as it is a big part of most people's lives. So I was hoping that it wouldn't be necessary. But there were other times that people said other crazy things to us about her diets, including on that fat-free diet when an administrator at her school crouched down and asked her how it was going. And we both said it was awful and we only had three weeks left or whatever. And this administrator asked my eight-year-old daughter to make a list of all of the foods she was eating so she could tell this administrator what they were so that that person could then use that list to take off her holiday weight or whatever. And I said no loudly in that moment and pulled Sammy away from her and said, this isn't safe. Eating this way isn't healthy for anybody. It's only for right now because of the complications she had in surgery and it wouldn't be good for you. And her response was, oh, I don't care as long as it helps me lose this weight. And she wasn't the only person who talked like that. Not everybody talked like that to Sammy, but many people mm-hmm. talked like that to me about it. Yeah, we got a lot of those comments too. I remember combing the grocery store aisles because the other thing about doing a fat-free diet when I did it about five years ago is fat-free is really out of vogue with diet culture in general. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to find <laughs> fat-free foods right. now. And so, you know, I'm like combing the aisles, like looking for the one like dusty box of snack wells that's left because, right. you know, what so cookie close. can I give a three-year-old to gaining fat? And people still sort of saying like, oh, lucky kid or something. And it's enraging. And as you say, it's also deeply depressing because it's speaking to this larger dysfunction that we have normalized it to the point that we will say these things to children. And it's also, you know, it's minimizing their struggle. It's minimizing their experience and going through this really tough thing. Sure. And also what other people think of as a fat-free diet from the 80s or whatever was actually not really fat-free. Right. Because a real fat-free diet that's used for the treatment of, for example, in Sammy's case, chylothorax, Mm -hmm. where there was a break in one of her thoracic ducts in her chest, means that you need to limit yourself to under half a gram of fat per serving. So an example of something that has more than that is air-popped popcorn. Right. I mean, chickpeas. Yeah. Edamame. Yeah. You know, these are foods that we think of as really healthy and we Mm -hmm. don't think of them as fatty, but that's too much fat. Can you imagine feeding a child on that little fat? I mean, it has huge effects on their mental health. It's awful to watch. It was also chylothorax in our case. And at the time, Violet's favorite food was guacamole. And my my best friend who podcast listeners know, Amy Palanjan, who runs Yummy Toddler Food, she worked so Mm -hmm. hard to figure out a fat-free guacamole. And she like came up with a recipe with, I think we were trying to use peas and like fat-free Greek yogurt. And it was like, I mean... Like, Amy, thank you again for going down that rabbit hole for me. But it tasted terrible. (laughs) Um, And I could see the betrayal on my child's face because I was like, you know, we think this is a guacamole you can eat. And it tasted nothing like what she was hoping to have. What fat does to food from a culinary perspective is all kinds of things you don't think of. Even that like spritz of olive oil on the bottom of your pan helps the spices stick to the food, right? All kinds of things that fat does to food that even our kids certainly couldn't identify. But 
creates a mess when you take it away. And on top of it, that little dietary fat in anybody's diet, it affects how your brain operates. It made me understand the 80s in a totally different way. You know, <laughs> all these angry women pushing their carts to the grocery store with their snack wells. And of course, they were cranky. Right. They're so deprived, and particularly for kids whose brains are growing and really need right. that fat. So in a way, I think the experience you and I both share is this understanding that the medical system failures in terms of not helping us through these murky waters mm-hmm. is really reinforcing this larger cultural failure where we almost always make feeding kids the main project and problem of mothers. And in reading the book, I resonated with how much feeding Sammy became central to your identity as a mother during these years. I mean, it was something you were spending hours every week on, and it really becomes your whole world. And yet also, it feels so unfair to reduce mothering just to the act of feeding kids. So I'm curious to hear, how have you reckoned with that relationship between food and with your mothering? How do you see these things relating to each other now? Yeah, well, I became the default person at home for some of the same reasons that a lot of women end up the default person at home. When her doctors told us that Sammy would end up in the hospital with every cold and she really couldn't go to daycare, looked at the cost of a nanny and what I was making. And it would have been, you know, like a treadmill for as long as we needed a nanny. I mean, I didn't make as much money as we would have spent on one. So it made sense for me. And also she was breastfeeding. I was the one with the breast. just made sense for me to be home. And then whoever was home with her had to be the one who learned best how to feed her. I will say also that my mother, who was the cook in our house when I was growing up, had said to me when I first quit my job and was worried that I was becoming boring and, you know, all I was was a stay-at-home mom and it wasn't enough for me in the moment, said, you know, you just tried to get into whatever it was I was doing at the time. So if that meant that I was home and I just had to get into the mothering thing, I got into it. And It was good advice for the moment for me. And so I really tried to get into it and find my little daily small wins in the kitchen. And sometimes that was a good strategy and sometimes it was not. Yeah. (laughs) But it did become my whole world for a long time. And I don't think that's so different from the ways in which other parents who are parenting medically complex children have their whole world be how to move their child who's in a wheelchair from place to place and advocate for better services. And parents who are parenting kids with other kinds of disabilities spend a lot of energy and effort on the things that will make their children's lives better because we love our children. You know, we want to make everything as easy as we can. So in that way, it was, I think, not so different from other ways in which parents get really dug in on their thing. Because the world's not built to get the wheelchair from point A to point B, because the world's not built to help kids learn to eat when they're struggling in this way. The culture is set up so that in general with parenthood, there's going to be this undue burden on the mother most of the time. And then certainly when you add the complications of medical complexity to that, it just pushes so many of us into this box. This is not about not loving our kids, but some larger systems in our culture that were there for us could also be really useful. We should also acknowledge, you know, as both of us were navigating these worlds, like we do have a fair amount of privilege at play. Absolutely. And, you know, you in particular are obviously a very gifted chef (laughs) who is able to cook from scratch to a degree that most people, myself included, cannot do, which is why things like, all those formulas are so important because not everyone can do the alternatives. Yeah, I actually would love to talk about that for a moment because the cost of 
feeding a child on one of these, in particular like these elimination diets, is intense. It is wildly expensive. Our grocery bill at minimum doubled on that diet, on the six-food elimination diet. And so I thought all the time about how parents with less means than we had could ever do this successfully. And I remember um, we were quite successful with those diets, but I remember my daughter's gastroenterologist saying, wow, you've really found a lot of great foods and you've really figured this out. Like we have so many patients are less compliant than you. And I said, well, you know, it was really hard. It was like at minimum a half-time job. Do all of your patients' families have the time and energy for this? And he said, well, probably not, but they should just do the formula then if they really, if they're not going to do what you did. And that was horrifying to me. I couldn't believe there wasn't um, a consultant in that office who could say, take a family to the grocery store mm -hmm. and walk them through, here are the brands of gluten-free noodles that work on this diet. Here is a coconut milk yogurt that you can usually get on sale. His use of the word compliant is so interesting yes. there because it really shows how much more marginalized parents, whether we're talking about parents of color, lower income mm -hmm. parents, you know, parents with their own disabilities get dismissed by the medical system and judged and to bring it back to the whole failure to thrive concept we right. were talking about in the beginning. Often that diagnosis is used as a justification for removing parental rights, you know, privileged white moms, not so much. <laughs> but if you're a lower income mom of color, like that's going to be a really terrifying diagnosis in a different way. I remember when my daughter was in the hospital for her final surgery, a friend of mine had his kid in the hospital getting treated for leukemia. And he had asked me how I'd found the social work team. Was I getting a lot of help? And I said, what social work team? And he said, oh, when we got the diagnosis, they were literally waiting outside the door. You know, when you get a cancer diagnosis for your kid, there's a trigger in the hospital system that just it activates the social work team. And I thought, why are there not triggers for any diet? that a doctor prescribes? Why is there not an immediate trigger for both a nutrition and dietitian team and a social worker? Because changing your diet like this, it changes your whole life. Yeah. And it's emotional. Food is love and emotion and care. And when there isn't an immediate set of supports other than someone handing you a sheet of paper with a list of foods on it, it's a recipe for failure, no pun intended. And unfortunately, if there were those triggers, I would worry in our current system, it would become a way to stigmatize parents struggling to follow the diet, right? Because Maybe. you're going to bring in people who have these different biases, perhaps, that they haven't reckoned with and are going to hold them against the parents. I mean, what you really want is like some sort of psychologist or social worker who's trained in disordered eating, in trauma-informed sure. care. There's like a whole level of support that I don't right. think is even part of the puzzle usually. So then that means the only people who can access them are people with other means. I think for other parents who are maybe in this boat now, it might be really helpful to hear a bit about how you were able to hold on to your identity during that time, you know, as Debbie, not as mom that the doctor's talking to, or if not so much holding it on then, like how have you kind of worked to find your way back to that? Yeah, I mean, I think probably during that time, not so much. You know, I might have been indignant. I certainly was lonely sometimes, but I had no time to be involved in the things that would have made me feel more like me. The exception would be that I did have a regular band that I played in. I was, I'm an old time fiddler, an old time Quebecois fiddler. And so I was lucky to get out and do that usually 
every week or two, you know, once every week or two for an evening or an afternoon. And oh, that I was love great. That. I love yeah, that. That was great. And it was actually great to be in that world where not everybody actually was even a parent and they didn't really know or understand my kids or my situation. And so it was a little bit of an escape. But other than that, no, feeding Sammy was the main job. I certainly worked. And when I look back, I'm kind of amazed at the places and situations in which I worked, you know, in hospital rooms, waiting outside surgeries or in the midst of 500 other things. I would have a computer on the counter, finishing a website for a client while also soaking some weird starch in some weird liquid to try (laughs) to form the ingredient for some weird thing I was trying to make that night. So, you know, I fit it all in, but I was probably mostly running on an autopilot as I think a lot of parents are. And I think to come back to myself, I'm lucky. I'm so lucky. Our family is so lucky that in the end, Sammy was curable. Sammy's issue had really nothing to do with what she was eating at all. And once we resolved the problem fully, I didn't have to do this anymore. And that took some getting used to Mm -hmm. also trusting myself, trusting her, knowing that she would eat what she needed to eat and she was capable of it and I didn't have to push, took some time. But I think actually writing this book was the thing that brought me back to myself to appreciate all that we had achieved together, Sammy and I, Mm -hmm. um, to appreciate all that I had survived. Yes. And to appreciate that in the end, both of us are thriving. Yes. Yes. I love hearing that. I look back on those years of my parenting and wonder how I was functioning as a person. (laughs) And yeah, and I think that's normal. And so I think it's good to know both that it won't be that way forever. And in my own family's case, it's not a curable condition. It's something we continue to live with, but that there have still been ways to sort of find myself again. And That does really matter. And I think it's helpful, too, because, you know, we hear all the time you have to take care of yourself to help everyone else and whatever. And it's sort of a garbage message a lot of the time. But it is true that you cannot care for a kid in any circumstance, but especially not a complicated circumstance if you aren't holding on to one little piece of yourself, even if it's just every two weeks band practice. So, yeah, that's really great. Well, we wrap up every burnt toast with the butter for your burnt toast segment where we give our recommendations. Mm -hmm. So Debbie, I would love to know, what are you loving right now? We are loving this season of Kids Baking Championship on the Food Network. This is one of our family favorites. It's a baking competition show, but all of the contestants are kids. This season is the youngest group of bakers ever. There are some, I think, as young as eight or nine, and they are making amazing baked goods that I could never achieve here in my 40s. Um, (laughs) So I absolutely love this show. I feel like sometimes these baking shows were what brought me back to like the creative and joyful part of cooking. I learned to make layer cakes and eclairs and all kinds of other like macarons, fancy things from watching these baking shows. I love that. I want to watch it with my eight-year-old because it also, you know, we're kind of at the stage where she's still a cautious eater. And Mm -hmm. I do find when she knows how to make something herself, it is hugely Mm -hmm. empowering. And I think, you know, her seeing other kids baking and loving food, that's a great recommendation. So thank you. very, very sweet. Yeah. Yeah. No pun intended there either. But yeah, it's great. (laughs) We love a good food pun here, obviously. (laughs) My recommendation for folks who are like Debbie and I in northern climates and probably the ice and snow is making you crazy, even though this will be 
it's March when you're listening to it. March. It'll the, still be icy and snowy. Still in brutal. Yep. <laughs> in the Hudson Valley too. If you have a garden or anywhere you can grow things, I recommend you get some poppy seeds and you just throw the poppy seeds out into your flower bed. You don't have to like dig holes. You don't have to do anything fancy. You just like s- literally scatter them around and Come July, you will thank me when you have spectacular poppies. So I just sowed mine, and I have a couple raised beds, and I just did the poppy seeds last weekend, like right on top of the snow. And it's just like this little moment. I try to do it around this time every year when I'm like giving up all hope that spring will return (laughs) because it gives me that minute of like, okay, it's coming back. And then I look at pictures of last year's poppies, and I feel really happy. So if you are a gardener or a garden aspiring person, poppy seeds is my recommendation. That's great. Well, Debbie, thank you so much for being here. I loved this conversation so much. Listeners, you need to get Kitchen Medicine right now. Go to your nearest bookstore. But Debbie, tell us where do they get the book and how can they follow your work? Yeah, thank you. So you can order it pretty much anywhere that you order books otherwise. It will be up on bookshop.org, which is where I like to point people because it supports independent bookstores. But even better, go into or call your local favorite little bookstore and order it from them. Does the benefit of you know, throwing a few bucks their way and also letting them know it exists, which is great for me. But anywhere you, you know, any of the places that you would normally order books, you can order it. The full title is Kitchen Medicine, How I Fed My Daughter Out of Failure to Thrive. There are other books with different subtitles called Kitchen Medicine. And you can follow me on Twitter at Grow the Sunshine. My Sammy's nickname is Sammy Sunshine. And also on Instagram at Grow the Sunshine. And if you have ordered the book and you send me a message on Twitter or Instagram, let me know that you have, I will dedicate one of my quirky, weird kitchen tools to you with a little story about it up on my Instagram account. So I'd love to do that. Those have been so fun to read. You have the most amazing collection of kitchen tools. I really enjoy it. It's pretty pretty impressive. So definitely (laughs) check that out. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Virginia. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. Just click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lip. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism. <laughs>